Welcome to sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. Well, welcome again to you if you're joining us this morning for Church at Home, whether you're in your bedroom or in your living room, whether you're alone or with loved ones. Welcome, and a special welcome again if you are just exploring the Christian faith, you're wondering what these Christians believe and what the Bible says about Jesus. We're so glad that you're with us. We all struggle with forward motion. We all struggle with forward motion. This line from a song by one of my favorite bands growing up sums up so much of how we can often feel in life that we all struggle with forward motion because forward motion, it's harder than it sounds. Every time I gain some ground, I got to turn myself around again. It's harder than it sounds. And if you're watching live right now and you can guess which band sang that song, you get bonus points. I have no idea what those bonus points will get you, but you get some bonus points. The point is, We struggle sometimes with forward motion. Some of us in life are stuck. Some of us are caught in in a pattern where it seems like we're taking one step forward and then two steps backwards. And there's no unified or sustained movement in your life. It's scattered and it's frantic. Do you feel that this morning? Today we're going to consider how true devotion intersects with forward motion, how true devotion intersects with forward motion in our life, and how faith in Jesus and living the way of Jesus might radically change that narrative of being stuck and entangled and distracted from getting on in the way that leads to life and joy. So I invite you to open your Bible, have it open in front of you to Luke chapter 20, And we are going to get into God's word this morning. We're going to start in Luke chapter 20, verse 45, and read through to chapter 21, verse 4. And as you're getting your Bibles open, just for context, let's remember that Jesus is now with his disciples, his closest students and apprentices in the temple courts, and other people are kind of eavesdropping, they're listening in, and Jesus has just been embroiled in some really saucy interactions with the leadership of his day. So let's pick up now in Luke 20, verse 45, and let's give ear because what we're about to read and hear is God's word. So Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 45. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said. This poor widow 
has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come for the renewal of worship and witness. Come upon us as we dive into the words that you inspired Luke to author, and would you shine your floodlight on Jesus? Would you shine your floodlight on Jesus and the way of his kingdom that we might be transformed in this encounter with him? And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name, amen. As we dive into the text this morning, we're going to consider two headings. First, we're going to consider the fact that Jesus clearly gives his disciples a warning. He gives them a warning to heed. And then, secondly, he gives them an example to follow. A warning to heed and an example to follow. What is the warning? It's there in verse 45. While all the people are listening and Jesus is talking to his disciples, he says in verse 46, beware of the teachers of the law. Beware of the teachers of the law. Who were the teachers of the law? Your Bible translation probably says scribes. Beware of the scribes. Well, the teachers of the law or the scribes were the professionally trained Bible scholars, rabbis, pastors, and theologians of Jesus' day. And along with that, they had a certain amount of prestige that came with their learning and credentials. It's a bit different than being a pastor in modern-day Canada. Back then, you were like the creme de la creme. They were who everyone looked up to. Everyone in Jesus' day saw the teachers of the law, who I will call the Bible teachers. They saw the Bible teachers as, as having everything put together, as heading in the right direction in life. Like if anyone has it figured out, it's those guys. But Jesus points to them and he says, beware of them. Don't be like them. Don't follow their example. They're actually not heading in the right direction. Why? His issue is not with Bible teaching in general, or, he, you know, Jesus is not taking issue with teaching the Bible or being a theologian or a pastor or a rabbi. Rather, he is calling out the Bible teachers of his day who had come to love the recognition of their position. Something had happened in them that had been twisted. They had come to love the, the, the power and the glory and the honor of being a Bible teacher. It, it, they came to desire the nice clothes that showed their high status. They, they loved getting likes on their Instagram account. They loved getting those comments that just showed how smart they were or praised them for their good fashion. They craved the respect and accolades of people. And while everybody else would look at them and say, wow, there's an important person, surely they've got it right, Jesus says they've got it wrong. They're not actually moving towards God. They're moving away from Him. 
And here was their problem. Their problem was a divided will. Now let me explain that. In Israel, these were supposed to be the people who willed God's glory above all else. They were entrusted with teaching the Scriptures. And and the Scriptures, if nothing else, are all about announcing God's glory and reminding God's people of His mighty deeds, of His saving acts, of what He's done to rescue us and to teach the people to shepherd the people, to lead the people to live lives that also glorify God. And what Jesus does is he exposes the fact that they're not seeking God's glory. Their wills are not only set on God's glory, but they're craving, they're set on their own glory. He says in verse 46, they like to walk around in flowing robes. Now, The word like there that you can see in the text, that's the Greek word fellow. And fellow is much stronger than our English word like. Fellow means will. It means desire. It's the same word used in the Lord's Prayer when Jesus teaches us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's way stronger than like. It's not just, oh, they have a fondness for nice clothes. It's they are seeking that. Their will is set on that self-importance, and it has become the object of their will. See, somewhere along the way, the glory of God had stopped being the guiding motivation of their life and of their work, and it became about their own glory. You see, their will is the issue. So what is the will? I mean, that's a rather abstract, philosophical uh, term. Well, the will is the the volitional center of your life. It it chooses what you're going to go after. It sets the course for your life. Think about the will as a horse pulling the buggy of your life in a certain direction. Think of it like a horse pulling the buggy of your life in a certain direction. Now, Having a divided will is like having another horse strapped to that buggy, pulling it in the opposite direction. So you say, yes, I I want God's glory, but I also want my own glory. And those desires, the, uh, the divided will is bringing your life in different directions. That's what's happening with the Bible teachers. And Let's be honest, when we think about ourselves, like if I'm honest with myself, I am so deeply complex and we are so uh, affected by sin. I mean, sin has worked its way into every part of us, our desires and our motivations, so that at best, even in my most virtuous deeds, I'm like a mixture of good and bad. Right? I can do something really loving and really kind for someone, and after I do that, I can have the thought, ooh, I wonder who saw that. I wonder who's going to praise me for that. I wonder what's coming my way for doing that good deed. So it's probably more accurate to assume that our wills are divided in all kinds of ways. That there's not just two horses pulling at the cart, but many horses. And no wonder we struggle with forward motion. No wonder. 
And this is not a problem just for those who are messed up in really obvious ways. This touches all of us. I mean, it touches especially, as Jesus makes clear, those of us who have an appearance of having it all together. And it can especially touch church people and followers of Jesus. I mean, remember, Jesus is talking about the Bible teachers to his disciples. These are church people. These are religious people he's talking to. And his disciples are the ones that in this particular moment in ministry, he is grooming to be leaders in his movement. He foresees that he's going to go to the cross and he's going to die and rise again. And what he's been doing all along in calling disciples to himself is he's getting ready for his movement to go viral through these 12 core apostles and disciples to to be shared and to spread out. These guys who are listening to him that he's talking to are about to be the leaders of the movement. And he says, watch out. It doesn't take much to go from being one of my genuine followers to being a peddler of a sham religion. It doesn't take much to go from being a fully devoted disciple of Jesus on fire for the gospel, but then power and praise go to your head and you start seeking your own glory rather than God's, and in the end, you start working against God's purposes. And let me be honest. For someone like me who stands here This is a stern and and a holy word. And it comes to me first. And to people like me. And before we we shine the light on anybody else and consider more implications for this, it's on me. And I find I'm driven to pray with the psalmist in Psalm 139, this prayer. Search me, O God and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. As we hear Jesus' warning, as we hear all of Jesus' teaching, it can be so easy to jump to the person who you're like, oh, this person really needs to hear this message. I hope my son is listening up right now because he really needs this. Or like, spouse, stop what you're doing in the kitchen. Get in here. Come on. This is like your issue. No. Jesus addresses us personally. This isn't about your neighbor. This isn't about your spouse. It's not about your kid. It's about you. Your will My will is divided. And for some of us, it's really obvious, right? But but for some of us, it's less obvious. But we're all in the same boat. Whether you've been a Christian for 50 years or for five days, there are always ways that our will is divided. And and the longer we journey with Jesus, it's like the deeper he he drills in the gospel, we discover deeper layers where, man, I am not seeking God's kingdom in this aspect of my life. And one of the great barriers to true devotion is what the great Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard called egocentric service egocentric service. 
that for spiritual, churchy people, it is possible to serve God and not really be serving God because we're doing it for the praise of having served God. We're doing it for our own ego. It's egocentric service. It's me-centric service. It's, it's doing things for God with the ever-present thought in your mind, how are people going to see me? Am I going to get that recognition? And it comes from a divided will. So, just think more broadly about this, and I want you to think about the tactic that kids sometimes use to get what they want from their parents. It's the classic, you know, show mommy and daddy love in order to get something from them. Have you ever experienced that? That one day, for no apparent reason, your child is suddenly being like super affectionate and super obedient and then later in the day, you discover, probably because they flat out asked you the question, but they, you discover that they were trying to condition you to give them something they wanted. They were trying to orient you favorably to their plight of wanting to uh, stay up late and watch a movie instead of go to bed early or, or to go to the store and buy that toy they've been wanting. And you discover the true motivation behind their devotion to you. And you're like, oh, man, they didn't really want me. They just wanted a toy. That may be silly, but it's a similar example. It's a similar example to how our devotion to God plays out when our will is divided. That, yes, we'll we'll put up that pretense of glorifying God, but really we're after something else. And in his own reflections of what it means to follow Jesus with an undivided will, Soren Kierkegaard wrote a very penetrating book. And that book was called, Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. And the title just speaks for itself. I mean, that's what Jesus wants. He wants us to become people who will one thing, to have just one horse pulling the buggy, to get our wills unstuck from that tug of war of the divided will and get us moving towards him and his kingdom. And that's what we want as a church here at First Alliance. We want to go deep in Jesus. We want him to go deep in us so that our lives can make a difference in the world as we live out the hope and love of the gospel. And the tragic thing is when our wills are divided, we can end up hurting God's work in the world. We can actually be what prevents the kingdom from coming in such full and practical and beautiful ways. We get in the way when our wills are divided. Look at verse 47. He says of the Bible teachers, the people entrusted with shepherding God's people and caring for them and leading them into the life that God had laid out. He says this, they devour widows' houses. And for a show, make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. They devour widows' houses. What's he talking about? Well, in those days, the way things worked is that the Bible teachers weren't on salary like the priesthood was. They weren't allowed to get paid for teaching the Bible, but they could receive gifts. And what ended up happening is they leveraged their power 
against the vulnerability of widows to take advantage of their hospitality, to get access to their money, to get these widows to trust them as executors of their estate and their property. And so in some cases, literally, these Bible teachers were devouring the houses of widows and their long prayers were a show to get them to trust them. And in the end, they end up working against God's purposes, against his love and, just, and justice. Jesus says, beware of them. Beware of a divided will. Beware of egocentric service. Because when our will is divided, we end up working against God. So that's the warning. Then Jesus gives an example. Look at chapter 21, verse 1. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Notice that there is a widow in the first half of our text and now a widow in the second half of our text. And so as Jesus is there in the temple, uh, spread out in the temple area where Jesus was teaching, there were a number of receptacles where people could give an offering of coins, of money to the temple. And these receptacles were metal trumpet-shaped funnels that you would put your money in. And so if you were in the temple, you maybe couldn't see what people were giving, but you sure could hear it. You could hear the plink of the coins hitting that funnel and being gathered into the receptacles. And, and if you got good at it, you could tell maybe roughly how much people were giving. And so Jesus looks and sees some rich people putting in their gifts. And imagine you're standing there with Jesus as one of his disciples and you, you hear the avalanche of heavy coins. I mean, it sounds like a slot machine. You know, this guy came along, he dumped in his money and you know, he just covered the next three months rent. That guy dumped in his avalanche of coin and he just bought the new steeple that they wanted to put on the roof. I mean, you know that they were giving a lot. And then a widow comes and all you hear is blink, blink. And you know, and everybody else knows that was nothing. It was a gift of no consequence from a person of zero importance. A woman in that day, uh, women were treated really poorly. They had little to no status and a widow even less so. And then it says she was a poor widow. So she wasn't even one of the widows that the Bible teachers would go after to take advantage of because she had nothing to take advantage of. She was a poor widow. She was a nobody. But look at what Jesus says in verse 3. Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. She put in more. How, Jesus, we, we heard the coins, we heard the avalanche of silver, and we heard the plink, plink. I mean, Jesus, it's really good you're not in charge of the money because I think your accounting is a bit off. But in verse 4, he tells them why. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, gave him all she had to live on. She put in all she had to live on. So the widow gave two pennies out of the two pennies she owned. Accountants, that's 
And say the rich guys gave $5,000 of the $50,000 they own, that's 10%. Now, Jesus is not criticizing the rich for putting in their gifts. That's, that's nowhere there. It's, it's a beautiful thing that they would give in that way. But according to Jesus, who gave more? The widow. You see, the measure of, of this gift is not how much was given, but it's how much was left over. How much sacrifice was involved. And the point is this, and this would have been scandalous to Jesus' hearers, that a person who by all earthly standards is nobody going nowhere, she is for Jesus a shining example of true devotion. She is for Jesus a shining example of someone whose life is moving towards God because she has an undivided will. She has an undivided will. Her gift shows that. She's all in, quite literally. And she gave everything. She, she doesn't have another nest egg to fall down back on. She doesn't have other accounts that will help her. There is for her only God. She's got one horse pulling the buggy of her life. Now, this is not a sermon on money, but what we do with our money what we do with our resources and with our time is one of the clearest ways of telling where our will is at. And one of the things that happens when our wills are transformed by Jesus to will one thing is that our view of our resources changes. Our view of money will change. The primal instinct of the world with regards to money is that you should use all your money for you. You earned it. You deserve it. You deserve to spend it on yourself. It's your right, and no one can tell you any different. And that's why we get so uncomfortable when they talk about money in church, because no one has a right to tell me what to do with my money, and I'm not telling you what to do with your money. <laughs> but I will tell you that the way of Jesus is founded on a fundamentally different view of the world and of wealth. And I will tell you that according to Jesus and according to the scriptures, everything belongs to God. It's all His already. And everything that comes to us is a gift from Him who gave you the talents to earn the money that you've earned. Who caused you to be born in Toronto, in this part of the world? Who caused you to be born into the family that you were born into? Everything we are and have is a gift from him. And as Jesus gets hold of our life, one of the things he transforms is that primal instinct around money. And that first instinct gets transformed and we start to say, God, here's my business. God, here's my trade. Here's my relationships. Here's my money. Here's my talent. Here's my time. It's all already yours. Show me how to use it for your glory and your kingdom. Show me how the gospel changes 
what I spend my money on. Show me how the gospel changes my relationship to video games or social media. Show me how the gospel changes what I view on the computer late at night. See, one of the reasons so many of us are stuck in our faith in God is because we don't view our lives through that lens of the gospel. We don't see the abundance of God. And we don't trust ourselves fully to Him. We fear. We fear for ourselves and our security. What if I don't take care of myself? What will happen? What if I really entrusted my life to God? And the key to getting unstuck is to learn from Jesus how to become a person who wills just one thing. We need to learn from Jesus how to become a person who wills one thing, and that is to will the glory of God. Even though it costs us something. Even though it will mean practical change for our lives and how we live, this is very challenging to our modern-day faith where we so often stop at good intentions and we say, God knows my heart so I don't actually have to step out in obedience. That's not the gospel. That's not the way of Jesus. Now, you might be listening and you're exploring Christian faith and you're not a follower of Jesus. I want to say to you that not all motion is forward motion. Not all motion is forward motion. Contrary to the spirit of modern pop spirituality, not every road leads to life. But I want you to know that the way of Jesus does. And all the obstacles that might be in your way uh, that are barring you from faith in Jesus, the doubt and the skepticism and all the time and effort that you put into wrestling through what the Bible says about Jesus is mental energy well spent for you to come to a place of knowing clearly where you stand with Jesus. So I encourage you to do that. And I hope we're safe to help you along with that. But for those of us who have given our lives to Jesus and we're following him as his disciples, though sometimes it seems like we're stumbling along, listen to this. Jesus isn't just our teacher. He's also our pattern and he's also our power for walking this out in our life. Yes, he's our teacher. His life and teaching show us the way to life and are authoritative for us. But he's also our pattern that he put his teaching perfectly into practice. He invited his disciples not just to listen to his sermons on tape, but to live with him, to be with him, to watch him. And he's the only one who truly lived to will one thing. He lived the life that we can't live in our own power. And then he died and he rose again and he sent his spirit to indwell us so that he himself might be the personal power in us to enable us to obey, to help us cut free from all those other horses pulling us away from God. The good news here, my friends, is that we are not cast back on ourselves to will one thing. Rather, the gospel casts us onto Jesus and his power, and his spirit to come and do in us what we are unable to do for ourselves. We have access to a power that far exceeds our own willpower. This is what Paul means in Philippians 2, verse 13, when he says, 
For it is God who works in you to will, that's our Greek word, fellow, to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. It is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So that's where we need to turn. We need to turn to God. We turn to Jesus and ask Jesus, come and be all that you are to me. Come into my weakness. Come into my divided will and sort me out. And the paradox is that when we truly live for God's glory and not our own, in the end we receive the glory that we wanted all along but could never get for ourselves. It's the upside-down way of Jesus. It's the way of the cross and the open tomb. It's the way of death and resurrection. It's the way of life. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I ask that you would come and continue to speak to us and show us where our will is divided. But even more, I ask that you would show us the resources available to us in you. That we would bring our divided wills to you and say, Jesus, come sort me out. I want to yield to you. Help me to do so. Jesus, I pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.